Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Good morning, everyone. Welcome everybody here in the room, everybody watching online as well. So glad that you've joined us. So it's a theme that runs throughout the literature of all ages. The tragedy of mistaken identity. The tragedy of mistaken identity. You know, it's Simba forgetting he's called to be the king, abandoning his identity as the rightful heir to the throne of his father, Mufasa. It's the African fable of the eagle that's raised by chickens and spends its days clucking and pecking on the ground, like oblivious to the fact that he has the power to soar through the skies. It's a tragedy of immense proportion. And I think one that we as believers fall into all the time, forgetting our true identity. In fact, I would say that the primary reason so many Christians fail to have victory in the Christian life is because they don't fully grasp their identity in Christ. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says this, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. As you think within yourself, so you are. In other words, we'll never progress beyond our own understanding of our identity. And so this morning, we're launching into this brand new series that I think is kind of a perfect follow-up to our previous series about following Jesus. Because in this series, we're going to address a major issue that gets in the way of doing life with God. It gets in the way of being a devoted follower of Jesus. It's a little thing called sin. You may have heard of it, okay? Anytime we fall short of God's perfect standards, which, if we're honest, happens a lot, that is sin. And so we're going to talk about how we best overcome sin so we can live as obedient followers of Jesus. And really, what we're talking about today is a fancy theological term known as sanctification. So allow me to explain three key biblical words that you need to know up front in this series. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Real quick, justification means being set free from the penalty of sin. Okay, this has to do with how are my sins forgiven? How do I get the gift of eternal life with God in heaven? And justification comes through faith alone in Jesus alone, period. Okay, next there's sanctification. Sanctification is being set free from the power of sin. It deals with the here and now. Sanctification is the struggle of how do I live out the Christian life? It answers the question, how do I break free from the power of sin on a daily basis? And that's what we're talking about today. That's actually what we're talking about throughout this series. And then finally, there's glorification. Glorification is being set free from the presence of sin. Like one day, we're going to be in heaven. And in heaven, there is no sin. And when there is no sin, there's no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no problems. And that's going to happen when we as Christians die one day, leave this body, go to heaven, and then eventually receive a glorified body. So the three phases of deliverance of sin from sin are justification, past, sanctification, present, and glorification in the future. Now, 
In today's passage, the Apostle Paul addresses a struggle that all Christians face. It's an internal struggle against our old sin nature. And he lays out a very clear formula for victory in this battle. But I need to give you some context here. Really, just so you know, this whole series is a walkthrough, a verse-by-verse walkthrough of Romans chapter 6 to Romans chapter 8, where Paul tells us a formula for overcoming sin. But prior to this, in Romans chapter 5, what Paul has done up to this point is he has shown that all mankind has a sin nature. This desire to sin, it's been handed down to us from Adam, the father of the human race. And how do we break free from the power of this sin nature? Well, you can't, at least not on your own. But the good news is Jesus has already broken it. And we're going to talk about how can we appropriate that into our lives. And the truths we're going to talk about in this series are huge because most Christians are defeated, they're discouraged, they have no power in their lives, and I think it's because they don't understand these particular truths about who they are in Christ. Well, Paul says, in order for you to break free from the power of sin, you have to know some things and you got to do some things. Three facts to know and three acts to do. And the difference between these facts and these acts is the difference between positional truth and experiential truth. Okay, we're going to go deep this morning, so you really got to focus. Hopefully you had your coffee, okay? There's positional truth and there's experiential truth. Question, can something be true without you ever having experienced it personally? Sure it can. I mean, can something be true even if you don't understand it, even if you don't believe it? Absolutely. There are things that God says about you in this book right here that from an experiential point of view, you may say, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not seeing that. But it's true whether you believe it or not. It's true whether you feel like it is or not. For instance, the Bible says that when you put your faith in Jesus, you were saved. All your sins are completely forgiven. And yet so many Christians still feel guilt over past sin. Positionally, they're forgiven. Experientially, they're guilty. You know, God says that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are placed in Christ. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You are placed in Christ. And the Bible says you are clothed, you are covered in Jesus' righteousness. So when God looks at you as a Christian, he sees Jesus. He sees you as perfect in his eyes. But do you feel perfect in God's eyes? See, I put this on your outline. Positional truth is what God has already said is true about me in my Christian life. That's my identity, positional truth. Experiential truth is when I actually begin to live my life the way God sees me. When I begin to believe and act on what God says is true. Let me give you an example of this. Back in 1863, President Lincoln rolled out the Emancipation Proclamation. And as the President of the United States, the minute he announced freedom, For all the slaves residing in territories in rebellion to the federal government, those slaves were legally free. But did they experience freedom in that moment? Not at all. Positionally, they were free from their masters. Experientially, they were still slaves. In fact, some of them didn't experience that freedom until many, many years later, after the 13th Amendment. And for some, they never experienced the freedom that was truly theirs. Now, if God has already said some unbelievable things are true about me, how can I begin to experience that in my day-to-day life? Well, I do it in three ways. First, I must know it. I mean, I got to know what God says about me or else I can't do anything with it. 
Second, I must believe it. You have to believe that God speaks the truth, whether it seems true or not. And then third, I must act on it. I've got to live as if it's true. I must know it, believe it, and act on it. That's the formula Paul lays out for us in Romans 6. And the first key word here is the word know. Verse 3, don't you know? Verse 6, for we know. Verse 9, for we know. To become the Christian God wants you to be, there's some things you've got to know, okay? Second key word is over in verse 11. It's the word count, consider, reckon. It means you believe it. Then finally, the third key word in verse 13 is the word offer or present. The Bible's going to say, don't offer yourself to sin, offer yourself to God. So when it comes to God's truth, he instructs us to know it, believe it, and act on it. All right, now let's dive in here. This is Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. Paul starts with this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, that's interesting. Shall we go on sinning? So he's talking about Christians that just may choose to live in continuous, deliberate sin. And why does Paul even bring that question up? Well, back in Romans 5.20, it says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You know, for Christians, when sin gets really bad, you know what God does? He pours out more grace. And so Paul is kind of addressing the smart aleck here who might say, hey, if every time I sin, it shows God's grace, I'll just be super, super sinful. And that'll show how amazingly gracious God is. Well, needless to say, that's abusing grace, okay? And so Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? His answer is very short, (laughs) by no means. The New English Bible says, no, no, no. I like that. No, no, no. Some translations say, God forbid. This is an emphatic phrase in the Greek. It's the Greek phrase, may ganoito. It means may it never be. Say that with me, may ganoito. Anytime someone says something you don't agree with, just say may ganoito, okay? Like your wife says, let's go out for Mexican food for lunch today. You say, may ganoito. We're going to Pokey Joe's or whatever. Took a lot of self-control. I wanted to say Shanghai Express, okay? There, there's rewards in heaven for me on that one, but meganoito. No, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, that, that's, that's ridiculous, Paul says. That's a gross misinterpretation here. I mean, okay, then I sin more, and it's going to show how awesome God really is. It'd be like your teenage son saying, Mom, I'm going to keep my room super messy, and then the whole neighborhood will know what an awesome housekeeper you are. Or, or I'm not going to care for my teeth. I'm not going to brush my teeth, and I'll get cavities and tooth decay, and it'll show what an awesome dentist I have. Now, the reasoning behind that is faulty, right? A dentist's skill is independent of how well you care for your teeth. On God's greatness and grace, it's independent of how much sin of yours that he has to forgive. You don't sin so that God can show more grace. And, and why not? Well, look at verse 2. Paul says, because we died to sin. We died to that. Why would we want to go back to that? We died to sin. Paul's leading us here to the first positional truth in this passage. When you became a believer, you were placed in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is used a number of times in the New Testament. Let's have a little fun here. How many times do you guys think the phrase, in Christ, is used in the New Testament to describe you and me? Anybody? Fire away. 30... 31, 
Are we playing the prices right here? Or what? 29. 30. Okay, we keep, we keep, you guys are pretty consistent. 50, 100, getting closer. 120 times. People, this is the number one way that you are identified as a Christian. The number one term, not saints, if the number one term is you are in Christ. This is huge. This is really important. We were placed in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees you as in Christ. And there's some other deep things that happen because we are in Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is, here it comes, in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. See, there is a tremendous implication here. Because I am in Christ, in some way, I was buried with Christ. I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I was resurrected with Christ because I was in Christ. God's so concerned that you get this truth that he uses an illustration tied to baptism. Look at verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Do you see how baptism illustrates this truth? Baptism represents a burial and a resurrection. When we take a person and we put them under the water, that's symbolic of them dying with Jesus, being buried with Jesus. And then when we bring them back up again, that's symbolic of new life, resurrection with Jesus. And baptism says publicly, I died with Christ. And since Christ died to sin, I also died to sin with him. If you're a believer, in some sense, you were in Christ when he died to sin on that cross. That's positional truth number one. Second, when Christ died, your old sin nature was crucified with him. This is huge. Look at verses six and seven. For we know that our old self, what's our old self? It's our old sin nature, our tendency to do wrong. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we no longer would be slaves to sin, Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin, right? Can can you tempt a dead man? No. If you're dead, temptation doesn't exactly have much effect on you. Let's look at a few parallel passages here. Ephesians 4, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. There it is again. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, your old self is your old lifestyle, like your old sinful desires and patterns and habits. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself me. See, I'm identified with Christ. I am in Christ. And that means if I'm in Christ, then, then I died with him and I was raised with him. 
In Romans 6, 6, where Paul says our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that's a key phrase there. That Greek phrase there, done away with, kata argeo, it literally means to leave unemployed. Okay, the old self with its selfish desires is now out of work. Doesn't mean that your tendency to sin was wiped out. You'll still have that tendency, but it's now been fired from being in control. It's technically unemployed. See, you don't have to give in to sin anymore. You can now choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin, to not sin. Am I saying you can be perfect? No, not a chance. But I am saying that moment by moment, you can choose not to sin. Have you ever said, well, I, I can't help myself. I, I, just, I just can't stop. But before you were a believer, that was true. You didn't have the power. Sin had the power over you. But now the Bible says you've been freed from that power by the power of the Holy Spirit. So a Christian can't blame Adam. A Christian can't blame the old sin nature. A Christian can't say the devil made me do it. Like if you sin, it's because you've chosen to sin. You have a new power. John Owens once said this, my greatest struggle in ministry is to convince non-believers that they are under the power of sin and to convince believers that they are not under the power of sin. And why are so many Christians defeated by simple habits? It's because they're looking at the wrong thing. They're not considering the positional truth of who they are. They're looking at their circumstances rather than looking to Jesus, looking to the cross. Okay, one more positional truth. Christ's resurrection has guaranteed your ultimate victory. Boy, this is encouraging. Verses 8 to 10. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, even death has been defeated. That was the worst enemy of all. So as Christians, we don't have to fear death because Jesus defeated death and guaranteed us the victory in the end. All right, so those are the positional truths of who we are in Christ. But now what should we do with this knowledge? Like how do we take this so that we can live the good life, the abundant life? All right, three steps I'm gonna give you. First of all, write this down. You have to reckon means you believe that what God says is true. You reckon it to be true. Look at verse 11. In the same way, count, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Greek term there, reckon, logizo, it's an accounting term. It means to compute, to calculate, to count on it. It means you believe in your new identity. Like Paul says, sin really doesn't have to have any effect on you. When you start acting like you truly are, when you start acting the way God says to act, let me tell you, just to be honest, sometimes it's going to feel fake. It's going to feel not real. It's going to feel like you're pretending. But the question in that moment is this, what are you going to trust, your feelings or God's word? God says the way you take something that's true and make it a part of your life is first you reckon it, you count on it, you bank on it. And this is not pretending, okay? It's believing that what God has said in this verse is true. We can make our own decisions. We can choose not to sin. We do have a new strength to live holy lives. He's called the Holy Spirit. So count on it. Reckon it. 
Have you ever heard someone say, you have to crucify yourself daily? Okay, the only problem with that is we can't crucify ourselves. Like we can't crawl up on the cross and nail our hands to it. But the Bible says that's already been done a long time ago, past tense. Did you catch that in Galatians 2.20? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Say that with me. I have been crucified with Christ. Not I am being crucified. Friends, just agree with God. Say, God, I don't understand it all, but I believe that because I'm in you, that somehow that sinful tendency, that tendency to sin inside of me has been crucified. That somehow I have the power to overcome that. I died to that tendency. Reckon it. Believe that what God has said about you is true. That's the first action step. Second, write this down. You've got to resist. Don't let sin go unchallenged in your life. This is verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. See, Paul is saying resist sin. A Christian has no business saying, I can't help it. Okay, reject the idea that you don't have control over your own desires, your own impulses, okay? Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You know, some people think the more spiritually mature they become, the less they'll be tempted. Yeah, fat chance, okay? Fat chance. The stronger a Christian you are, the more the devil will tempt you. I have a feeling that Billy Graham probably faced temptations that none of us will ever have to deal with. Like the devil just puts little junior demons on you and me, okay? I'm sure he faced all kinds of temptation. So as you mature and grow in Christ, don't be surprised by an increase in temptation. And please hear me on this. The temptation is not the problem. It's how you respond to it. And this makes me so, so sad because I know a lot of Christians, many Christians, they're defeated, they're discouraged, they're psyched out by temptation. And, and maybe you've been a Christian for 20 years and you're in the middle of a prayer time and the, the devil sends a thought into your head. It's the most ugly thought in the world and it freaks you out. You're like, where did that come from? I must be a terrible Christian. Now, don't be intimidated by temptations, okay? Men, if you're at the beach and some gal walks by in a next-to-nothing bikini, okay, some people would say, well, it's sin if you're attracted to that woman in that moment. No, not at all. In fact, first of all, guys, you ought to thank God if you're attracted to a woman, okay? <laughs> Biblically speaking, you're, you're a healthy male, okay? And I can guarantee you, the devil's not going to miss a chance to get you, hey, why don't you take a second look? Why don't you stare incessantly? Now, does that mean you sinned just because that thought crossed your mind? Not at all. What is sin is when you begin to meditate on it, when you begin to dwell on it. Paul says you'll still have those desires, but now you've got a power to resist them. So you reckon, you resist, and then third, you render. You offer yourself to God. In Romans 6.13, Paul says, don't offer your body to sin, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. You know, that word render means to put at one's disposal, to offer voluntarily. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present, 
offer, render, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. To render means you make a present of yourself to God. You offer yourself to Him daily. You give your life over to Him. That's the key to overcoming temptation. Now, the problem with a living sacrifice is what? It can crawl off the altar, can it? So on Sunday, we come to church and we admit to God that we've blown it during the week. We confess to Him and then we render, we offer ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice on Sunday. And then on Monday, we crawl off that altar. On Sunday, we sing, Onward, Christian Soldiers. Monday, we go AWOL. Like, it's a continual battle. Present yourself to God. Offer yourself as a present to God. Say, God, here's my mind, my lips, my hands, my body. I give it all to you. Okay, that's the key to victory in the Christian life. Doesn't mean you won't stumble or fall. You will. Oh, you will. But look at verse 14. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. We're going to talk a lot about this next week. This is where Paul goes next in Romans, talking about the law, not being under law, but being under grace. You know, the law, the Bible says, brings death, but grace brings life. So we can have victory in the Christian life because God says you are now living under grace. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. Did you catch that? Not the law, not rules and regulations. The grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. Sin doesn't have to dominate your life anymore. And sin is like gravity. It's constantly trying to pull you down and make you stumble. Grace is like God giving you wings. You can soar in the air in spite of the gravity. Your true identity is that of the eagle, not the chicken. So my wife, Wendy, is a writer, and she bases a lot of her stories off of real-life animal encounters that she has on our ranch or other places. And, and she wrote a clever little blurb about a sheep that fits perfectly into the theological message God has for us right here in Romans 6. So allow me to read this to you. And, and it starts out with sheep noises. Okay, so if it sounds a little weird, I'm not freaking out on you, all right? Here we go. Hey, yeah, bah, thank you. You, you can do those. Hey, hey, bah. The sheep's disturbing call sounded like a grown man being stabbed with a sharp toothpick a thousand times over. Look, I said, you're just stuck behind the gate. You're fine. In fact, you can get out easily. Here, let me show you. Hey, hey, bah, bah. The woolly creature walked forward, pressing his already wedged head further into an extremely tight corner behind the gate. She says, I took a deep breath, knowing the neighbors might call the sheriff, thinking I was torturing this sheep because of his ridiculous fuss it was making. But he was fine, completely fine. He could escape so easy, it was within his power. But he just didn't believe it. He was certain there was no way out. She says, I looked at the other two sheep who didn't fall into this predicament. <laughs> I'd never kept sheep before and greatly underestimated their zeal for dysfunctional problem solving. This particular Einstein often tried to outsmart the others. 
I'm certain he thought he was taking a shortcut to the grain by sneaking behind the gate instead of going through the obvious open doorway. For a few moments, I'm sure his thrill at his own ingenuity propelled him forward. How great it was going to be to get to that grain first. Surprise, sheep. The back of the gate leads to a hinge that's connected to the cattle pen. It's a dead end. I glanced at the other two sheep who were ignoring their friend's cries about how his life had come to sudden ruin. They had waltzed through the path of least resistance and munched on their grain and his. Occasionally they looked his way and I could swear one of them rolled his eyes. Hey, hey, oh my gosh, she says, will you stop panicking? Seriously, you're going to have a heart attack for no reason. You're fine. Simply take a few steps backwards and you're free. (laughs) He wouldn't budge. He was only trapped in his own thinking. The difference between staying stuck and freedom was all in his head. It was all what he had determined was his reality. Sometimes I think we as Christians resemble that sheep. Even though Jesus has set us free from sin and death, we choose to live under the control of sin rather than newness of life. You'll still have those old selfish tendencies, but on the cross, they were rendered powerless. The sin nature was left unemployed. So people, send your sin nature packing. The next time a voice inside your head says, well, go ahead and sin, it's no big deal, God will forgive you. Think of Romans 6.1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. People, God says you're dead to sin. That's positional truth. It's your true identity. So start acting like it. How? Reckon, resist, and render. Reckon. Say, God, I believe that what you say about me is true. I believe that somehow, some way, my old sin nature died on that cross. Resist. You know, I'm not going to give up and give in, let the devil intimidate me. I may have done it for the last 30 years. I don't have to keep doing it. And finally, render. Offer yourself a living sacrifice to God. Offer yourself as a present to God. Give yourself as a present to Him. Day in, day out. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the amazing truths that at times are somewhat abstract, challenging to grasp. But the truths that Paul has written for us in Romans 6, they're so important because if we don't believe and understand who we are in you, we'll never live like it. We'll never be able to move forward until we truly reckon these things to be true. So God, help us to believe you, even when everything around us looks different, to believe that we don't have to give in anymore. And God, teach us how to resist, how to say no. Not to say, oh, I can't help it. I've done it before. I'm going to keep doing it again. No, we have the power now through your Holy Spirit to resist. And finally, God, help us to to render our lives to you, to give ourselves to you, to present ourselves to you. God, we thank you so much for what you through your Holy Spirit spoke through Paul thousands of years ago in Romans. And I'm excited to go through this series and learn how we can fight 
and not just fight sin, but really, truly win the battle against it. Lord, we depend fully on you to pull this off. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name.